Ryan is not here this weekend, so you're going to have to bear with me, if you will. Um, let's start off by reading uh, our chapter this week, Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Verse 12, And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry, and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent them as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. 
I will go and see him before I die. Spirit of God, please uh, teach us from these words today. Uh, may your words uh, say what my words cannot. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Ryan is gone, but he left the best chapter in Genesis for me. So that's, um, I think he expressed that he was a little upset that he, when he realized that this was going to be his week off. So this is kind of what it's all been building up to, you know. Uh, the story of Joseph, and Joseph is favored by his father uh, above his other brothers. He's given a coat of many colors. Um He's sent out to check on his brothers, and uh, they're not happy about that, and so they plot to kill him. Uh, and instead of killing him, or before they kill him, they throw him into a pit. And uh, then these Midianites come by who are slave traders, so he calls an audible. They call an audible and, and sell him uh, as a slave uh, into Egypt. Uh, and Joseph uh, is bought by Potiphar, who's the... Uh, captain of the guard for Pharaoh, and by Joseph's competence and by his honorable uh, conduct and by uh, the blessing of the Lord, he rises to the top of Potiphar's house, um, only to be accused of rape and sent to prison. In the prison, he behaves himself honorably and competently, and the Lord blesses him, and he rises up to be Top prisoner. I don't know <laughs> what type of role that is. But anyway, he, he's honored in, in everything that he does in the prison. Uh, he interprets some dreams for some of the other prisoners, and they think that's pretty awesome. They come true, um, and uh, Pharaoh's butler is restored into Pharaoh's house. But he doesn't remember Joseph for a few more years, so another downer. Um, then Pharaoh has some dreams that are really troubling and then the butler remembers Joseph. And so they bring Joseph out of the prison, uh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's dreams are basically that there are going to be seven good years uh, of abundance and then seven years of famine, uh, and that Pharaoh should set somebody who is, uh, who is competent and who is honorable in its conduct and whom God is blessing uh, to take charge over those matters. And so Pharaoh says, that sounds like you. Uh, so why don't I make you my right-hand man? And Pharaoh basically becomes uh, more of a symbolic leader, and he gets to hang out and, and uh, do whatever he wants while Joseph manages the daily affairs of the kingdom. And Joseph thinks that all is well. This is like the end of the story. He has persevered, and now he's blessed for it, and that's a happy ending, right? He names his son Manasseh, meaning God has helped me to forget all my troubles. And then one day, his troubles all come walking in. His brothers have come to Egypt for grain. And that brings us to where we were last week. Um, now, like chapter and verse uh, breakups in your Bible, uh, they weren't in the original manuscripts. That's something that's added later so that we could reference. When I say go to Genesis 45, you know exactly where, how to find that in your Bible. Uh, whereas when it was originally written out, it's just like a book. It just goes. So sometimes these chapter breaks aren't that helpful um, because it's kind of broken up the flow of this story um, or made it a great cliffhanger, depending on how you look at it. But 
Uh, last week, we were Ryan was talking about how Joseph's testing his brothers. Um, he's really trying to rattle their cages and see what they're made of because it's been 22 years that have passed, 23 years that have passed. And uh, when he sees them, he kind of disguises himself from them, speaks roughly to them through an interpreter, uh, accuses them of being spies, and puts, he's trying to put them in hot water and kind of see what comes out because... And everybody is respectful and nice when they go before a ruler or in a business transaction, they're trying to buy grain. So he can't really learn anything from them if their, um, if their conduct or their character has changed over this time. So uh, he keeps kind of poking them to see what happens. Um, so he holds on to Simeon and uh, tells them to go back and bring Benjamin back with them next time they come down to Egypt for grain. And when they come back, he shows Benjamin preferential treatment. Uh, he does all that. He has this dinner for them, and uh, he arranges them by their age, which really freaks them out when they realize what's happened, because who would know that? you know? And then he gives Benjamin you know, five times as much of everything. Um, giving Benjamin this preferential treatment, which is like exactly what his father had done with him, and kind of stirred up all this resentment uh, in the past and got this whole uh, story kicked off. So what are the brothers going to think when they see Benjamin getting this special treatment? Are they going to hatch a plan to get rid of Benjamin on the way back to Canaan, you know? Joseph's wondering this, this so he gives them the perfect opportunity to do it. Uh, he treats Benjamin in this way, and then when they go back, he puts in Benjamin's stuff... Uh, his silver cup, which is like one of his most prized possessions. And then he accuses them that he has his men chase down the brothers and accuses them of stealing uh, from Joseph. Of course, they know they haven't stolen from him. So Judah steps up and he's like, you know, uh, if anybody is stolen from stolen from Zaphnath Paneah, which is Joseph's Egyptian name, uh, if anybody's stolen from him, he should be put to death because we all know we didn't steal. And sure enough, they open Benjamin's sack, and there's the cup in there. So they tear their clothes, they weep, and they enter back into, into uh, Joseph's presence. When they get back to Joseph's presence, Judah falls down in front of Joseph, bows before him, and he says, basically, I made a vow in my life that I was going to bring this boy down here. I was going to return him safely uh, to my father. I'm not going to leave him. In fact, I'll give my own life for him. You can keep me as a slave just so long as you uh, release my brother Benjamin. And that is where chapter 44 ends. So let's go now from the closing verses of chapter 44 into chapter 45 to get the flow of this. 44.33 Judah says, Now therefore, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before those that stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed 
at his presence. Just like understatement of the century, right? Um, Joseph's entire life has been building up to this moment, and he knows it. He's had months and months to kind of set up this situation with the brothers to test their character, but probably not in his wildest dreams is he thinking that Judah, who's like the scummiest scumbag brother, uh, is going to come and like throw himself down and offer his own life to save his brother. So up until this point, Joseph's been putting up this tough front. He's Zaphnath Panea, if I'm saying that right. He's a tough guy. He's got responsibilities. He's managing the whole kingdom. And he's had this all building and building up inside him for years. So he says, everybody out to his attendants. And the brothers are like, oh man. <laughs> They're terrified of this guy. And he's like visibly shaken about something. Visibly unhinged. In verse 2, he wept aloud and everybody in the palace heard it. This is not like polite, like crying. This is like ugly crying, right? When you're like racked with sobs. Um, when you cry really, really hard, it's like almost like vomiting, right? It's like a whole body, like cathartic experience. It's uncontrollable and it's exhausting and it freaks out the people that don't know what's going on around you. So he breaks down and he says, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? Do you think that like clicked right away with them? They were like, oh yeah, okay, it all makes sense now. Or do you think they're like dumbfounded? Um, this happens to me, uh, probably happens to you too, where you like go to the store and you see somebody and they're like, hi, with this recognition. And you're like, hi, how's, how's the family? And you like have no clue who they are because you're not seeing them in context, you know, Maybe you worked with them like eight years ago or something. And so you're not seeing them in context. They're not in their work clothes. And it's just, it's difficult to place them. And so I can't imagine like seeing your brother 22 years later in a different country, in a different situation. And he's been speaking to them roughly through this interpreter. And all of a sudden he says to them in Hebrew, I am Joseph. Um, must have br like broken their brains at this point. And they must have thought, we're dead meat if this is true because of what we did to Joseph. So in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, again, he reinstates it. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, in case you forgot. He calls them near. Uh, this probably would not have been good at all for them if... Uh, if Pharaoh's guards would have heard uh, about what the brothers did, right? Uh, this is like an act of um, an act of mercy from Joseph to put everybody else out. Nobody else deserves to be here or needs to be here to hear uh, this exchange between him and his brothers. It's a good model for us in how we deal with people who have wronged us, right? For me, it's like instant when somebody has wronged me, I want to walk into the next room and tell somebody else about it and kind of, you know, cut those people down, right? Um, Joseph could have done this in front of people. He could have humiliated the brothers, um, but things likely wouldn't have gone well for them. Only the people who are affected by the situation need to be engaged in the act, in the act of forgiveness. It's 
pretty difficult to, for healing to fully occur in a situation like with a coworker, another church member, somebody even in your family, if you've talked about them and involved everybody else in that situation. And then maybe you two have forgiveness or have some healing, but now everybody else doesn't kind of have this closure on the situation because everybody else knows about it. So he puts everybody else out who doesn't need to know about this, and he deals with the situation uh, personally with them. Verse 5. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph gets, he's had time to process, he gets the sovereignty of God. He understands that God was in control of all this that happened. Why has all this happened? It's to preserve the lives of his family and their children and their children's children. God has been in control the whole time. He says, it wasn't you that sent me here. It wasn't you that did this. It was God. This makes some of us pretty uncomfortable, right? Like, but what about their free will? I mean, they, they did this. This was wrong. Joseph's not worried about kind of reconciling and balancing God's control versus the free will of his brothers in this situation. He calls them out. He says, I am Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You bear responsibility. They sinned. They acted. They exercised their will to commit a terrible act. It's true. And he acknowledges that. He doesn't say, well, you guys messed up, but then God went, oh, no, my plan. And he came behind and cleaned things up, right? He's like, no, you acted, you did what was wrong, but God is also in control. Joseph doesn't try to kind of like pit these two things against each other. There are a lot of things, uh, there are a lot of truths about God that are just bigger than us and are difficult for us to put together. And this is one of them. We want to know the mechanics of things like this. We want to go, no, I want to know how this works. I have to nail this down or I don't know what to think. But can't we just be like Joseph and kind of rest in the tension of that? Rest in something bigger than us, you know? I don't understand how both of these things can be true, that I can act freely and yet God is sovereignly in control, and yet both things are said. Uh, in God's word. So if God exists, who spoke matter and existence and the universe into being with the word of his mouth, do you think that maybe there are some things that are a little too complicated for my brain to understand? Now, this doesn't mean we just excuse people for their actions every time somebody does something wrong and we go, okay, well, God meant for that to be. But when we trust that he's in control, it's so much easier for us to forgive people. When I trust that God's in control, I don't have to like twist the knife on somebody and gauge their sorriness when 
I'm forgiving them. I can just rest and grant forgiveness and allow healing to occur. God will get it. He knows what he's doing. My job is to forgive, and his job is to, uh, is to be the judge. That's freeing, right? I try to measure so often, like, how sorry is someone, and should I extend forgiveness yet? Are they sorry enough? Do they deserve to be forgiven? Joseph doesn't do that. He grants them forgiveness before they've even said a word. He says, no, 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 come here close to me. We gain perspective when we start viewing the events of our lives through the lens of God's sovereignty. Though there's so much evil in the world, there is so much pain and chaos and destruction that all of us are going to endure in our lives. Though, as MLK said, the arc of the moral universe is long, it bends towards justice. Joseph went through so much in his life, but he was able to endure it and gain perspective by it. And he was able to zoom out to this eternal, godly perspective. The fact is, Joseph saw immediate salvation for his family, and yet he still didn't see the whole picture. What's going to happen in a couple generations is that his whole family is going to be put into slavery in Egypt. That's not good. It'll be delivered after 400 years under Moses, returned to the land, but they're going to mess up through the whole Old Testament again and again and again. They're going to keep self-sabotaging and, and enduring judgment uh, that they've inflicted on themselves until Jesus walks onto the scene. Jesus is a descendant of Judah, who's the scummiest scumbag brother. Judah's tribe produces the lion who makes all things right for all generations. But we can zoom out even further, and now here we are looking at this plan. But we still don't see the end of this. But we know that though the arc of the moral universe is long, that it is still bending towards justice through Jesus Christ. Back to the text, verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Go get dad. Bring him. This is a great place to live. The, the Nile Valley is like the most fertile area in the in the Middle East and especially in this time uh, in this time in history this is one of the greatest places uh, in the known world to live the Nile um, makes this a very fertile area and he's offering to them Goshen which is like the best area in all of Egypt these guys are totally unworthy of this and that's the point 
Joseph says, bring your families and I'll provide for you. I'm not going to hold you off at arm's length. I'm not going to keep you guys over a barrel. Your home is here with me. Verse 14, he fell upon his brother's brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. It's not a super comfortable scene for a lot of us modern Western guys. Um, a lot of men in Western culture, we've been you know, kind of taught as we grow up uh, that a man's man is unemotional. You know, maybe the only emotion we need is anger to just Hulk smash somebody when we need to. But uh, we prize toughness and we prize bottling up our emotions basically forever. Uh, this is kind of a broken uh, archetype that, that, uh, that we're taught, though, because emotions are part of who we are. God has created us as emotional beings, and he's an emotional being. Our, emotion, our emotions are part of how we're made in his image. So we may successfully hold in our emotions for our whole lives and bottle it up, but as many health studies will show you, your, your life might be shorter because of it. Because things like uh, the psychological disorders and heart disease and everything is linked to uh, bearing down on your emotions and not letting them out. So uh, this is not a comfortable scene, but Joseph and his brothers at this point are not worried about what anybody else is thinking. And they're going to weep and cry and hug and kiss each other and, and, and have healing begin. Now, I'm not saying that you should be like me and be hyper-emotional because I cry at good car commercials. It might be a little bit too much. But, um, you know, there are some of us who are driven and, and guided by our emotions, and we make decisions based on how we feel, you know. And what we need is we need to be more uh, analytical. We need more mental engagement. We need the truth to guide our emotions back to what's right. But some of us are really mental and analytically driven and not very emotional. But what people who, who, have who are built this way need to do is they need to allow uh, truth to guide them to a healthy emotional uh, life. And uh, that's how we all become balanced, healthy individuals. Verse 24, he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Like, that's just the weirdest thing to me, right? Like, after everything that they've gone through, he's like, hey guys, don't fight on the way back. Like, that's got to be humor, right? Do you think he was serious with that? Like, Again, Joseph had every opportunity over the years to destroy his brother's reputation. He's sending them back, and Pharaoh says, take, take the wagons, take you know, all the good of the land up to your father and bring him down here. We'll give him the best land and the best of the land. Go get your dad. Pharaoh is so stoked that Zaphnath Paneah's brothers have arrived. Do you think that would have happened if Joseph would have been talking about his brothers all this time and poisoning their their, and justly poisoning their Pharaoh's image of his brothers. No, he has been 
Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he hasn't been complaining and, and dragging other people down, even though he rightly could have done so. So Pharaoh, ha Pharaoh has this pure relationship with the brothers. He's starting blank slate and inviting them down uh, to Egypt. They don't deserve this, but that's exactly the point. Joseph is this perfect hero, savior, archetype. It's something that we see again and again in Scripture, and we read in great stories, and it's in Marvel movies, and all great stories have, have a hero that humbles himself in order to uh, you know, serve other people and save other people. And this is ultimately, uh, it's built into us as humans that we craft stories this way uh, because we're longing for a savior. Joseph, though he had done nothing wrong, he was despised and given a death sentence for the sole purpose of preventing him from upsetting the status quo, like Jesus. He descends to Egypt. He suffers injustice, just like Jesus descended to earth to suffer for us. And only to, in the end, become highly exalted to the right hand of power from where he is judge, chooses not to count the guilty as such, but to call them brothers and provide salvation, mercy, and blessing for the undeserving. That's good, right? What do you think about verse 24, this don't quarrel along the way? I don't think they really, I think it was humor because I don't think they really would have been fighting this whole way back after they've been forgiven so much. In Luke 7, the prostitute comes to Jesus and she falls at his feet. And she anoints his feet. The disciples are kind of grossed out by this. And they asked Jesus, you know, shouldn't we get her out of here? And Jesus says, one who is forgiven little loves little, but one who is forgiven much loves much. Being forgiven much, when you realize you've been forgiven much, it's a transformative experience. And these guys knew, they were hopefully new men at this point, they knew what they had been guilty of, and what they had been forgiven for. I don't think they were fighting on the way home. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So this is still within the arc of Jacob's story. You know, we talked about Jacob and we felt like we closed the book on him, but really Joseph is a subset of the story of Jacob. You remember Jacob? He's a deceiver. He robs his brother Esau of his inheritance. It's been a really sad, uh, sad last two decades for Jacob. He's growing older. He, when he was younger, he deceived his father in his father's old age when he was blind. And now he himself is going blind. He's been in this crippling depression because of Joseph. And note to, note to dad, since it is Father's Day, 
There's a happy ending to this story and because of forgiveness and healing, but remember that just like this family, as parents, our own pet sins are often what we pass on to our kids. Our own weaknesses are often amplified in our children. So this family, they have some reconciliation, and they have happy days before Jacob dies, but what a better story would it have been if they didn't have to uh, have lived a life of regret in the first place. You remember how this sin amplifies through these generations, right? So Abraham, when he goes uh, to a foreign land, he lies and says that his wife is his sister because he doesn't want to get killed by this king. And uh, Isaac, his son, copies that exact same lie in a very similar situation. And then Jacob is named deceiver. He's named liar. And he deceives everybody in his life uh, to a certain point. Um, and then the brothers have this horrendous sin where they lie to their dad and where they sell their brother into slavery. This just continues and continues. This pattern of deceit and then favoritism of certain children is passed on and grew and festered with every generation. But the good news is that every generation has a chance to break a cycle uh, of sin and a cycle of pain in a family. So parents and dads, we need to fight hard uh, to stop, to keep from passing on things that we've learned, uh, bad habits that we have. Uh, we have to fight hard to keep from passing those on to our kids and, and seeing them uh, have to learn that uh, by painful example. Do as I say and not as I do. That doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't cut it. A bigger part of this, though, of the brothers going back to Canaan, I think, is, is that the truth will set you free. Um, the brothers had to go back to Canaan. They had to go back to Jacob and tell him Joseph is alive and undoubtedly tell him the story of why he's not actually, why he didn't actually get eaten by a wild animal like they said he did. Nothing else could be accomplished. No further healing could occur until they came clean and the truth came into the light. It must have been like whenever you've confessed something to somebody, even small things, it's really difficult to humble yourself and get those words out. But this is like unreal. They've been living with this, harming their relationship every day. You know when you have something between you and somebody else, how you can hardly look that person in the eye because you know that there's something between you, even if they don't know. They've been living this way for decades now. But it's never too, rate, too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to tell the truth and allow healing to start in a relationship. So to close this out today, uh, I'd like to go back to a specific scene that we talked about earlier um, and want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the brothers. In particular, uh, at the moment when they're standing before Joseph and they hear him say, I am Joseph. I can't imagine how incredibly mortifying that would have been. Here they stand bearing this great weight that they've carried for this long time of their guilt. Before them stands a person of staggering power who is not only their judge, 
but their prosecutor, and he's also the innocent one that they've sinned against. He has the power and the right to squish them like bugs in a situation, and they know it. For those of us who have a, a personal relationship with God, I think a lot of our journeys start in a place kind of like this. We know that we're messed up people. Uh, we know that we're not good enough on our own. And we know that there's a God and we know that, that he's powerful and holy and just. And we can't imagine anything but judgment coming from him. We see him as this harsh, judging figure. Then Jesus, in his mercy, he reaches out his hand. And instead of judgment that we deserve, he says, come close to me. He embraces us as brothers and sisters, co-heirs of his own glory. The work is done, he says. You're to live with me. I have prepared a place for you here. You can never do enough to earn my grace. You can never repay what you owe. So rest. I give it to you freely. Maybe some of us haven't gotten to that place yet. We're standing there thinking these horrific thoughts about who we are and who God is. You might be thinking, I know I'm imperfect. I know I've done wrong and that I've messed up. I know I need help, but from where I'm standing, I just see this, this harsh judge. But trust him and listen for his voice, and he will call you near to him. When you hear him call you close, don't hesitate. James promises that if you draw near to God, he will draw himself near to you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, thank you for this picture in Joseph's life. We see ourselves in this story. Uh, we see you in this story. Um, there are so many levels to it. I just pray that uh, your word would, uh, through your spirit, continue to act in our hearts and minds as we go throughout this day and this week, uh, that we would be uh, transformed by this truth. Pray that we would make right things that we need to make right. We pray that we would humble ourselves. We pray that if we need to draw near uh, to you, uh, that we would do so. We would realize the free gift, uh, the free gift of your salvation and forgiveness that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.